I have mixed emotions when the choir finishes. Because there's part of me that just wants it to continue. And the singing you've done this morning, the singing the choir's done, the work of the orchestra, all those involved with that, you've ministered to our hearts. I think every one of us in the room want to know that our lives matter. When we're young, we have, we have great ideas about what that might look like, and we prepare, we anticipate, we march forth in order to accomplish what we believe will make our lives matter in the long run. But as the years go by and the, the decades pile up, along with the losses and the crosses and the disappointments and the difficulties and the goodbyes, we start to realize that while our lives still ought to matter and we want them to matter, we start to realize just how limited we are to achieve that. And we start to wrestle with what it's all for. And the song that the choir just sang helped us focus our minds on the truth, the reality, that we as human beings find our worth in God's glory. He's created us in His image. He has given us work to do. And the degree to which we let the Lord be our shepherd and we find our identity in Him is the degree to which our lives are really catapulted into having great meaning beyond even what their intrinsic worth would be. Part of the reason we gather on the Lord's Day as we do is to remind ourselves of why we are alive and to refocus our hearts on what will make our lives matter. And we know that this very concern mattered to Paul as well because he talks about it a lot in the letter to the Thessalonican believers. In 1 Thessalonians, we've been studying in our text this morning, in chapter 2 and verse 1, begins with these words, for... You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty. Our lives mattered in your life. And what we did and and what we suffered mattered for your sake. The word for reminds us that we are studying a portion of a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in, in Thessalonica His letter didn't have chapter and verse divisions. That's for helping us find the particular passage. He wrote a letter like we write a letter. We are studying the letter paragraph by paragraph, Sunday after Sunday, to give us time to understand it and to apply it. But we want to keep in mind how each part fits into the flow of the message of the letter. You remember that Paul is writing the Thessalonian believers because of the encouraging reports that he has received regarding their works of faith and labors of love and steadfastness of hope 
in the face of heavy persecution, they have survived the onslaught, and they are thriving. And it is clear to Paul and his fellow missionaries that God loves them and has chosen them and is at work in them. And the proof of that at the beginning was even in the way that, that God worked through the missionaries and, and the receptive response the Thessalonians gave toward their gospel witness. Paul talks about the impact of God's work through the missionaries in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And again in verse 9 of chapter 1, they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you. And then he comes back to it, the first verse of our text this morning, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So it's not just the message of the gospel, not just the message that captured the hearts of the Thessalonian believers, it was the manner in which it was delivered. That's what gave it credibility. That's what marked it as from God. Sometimes people put forth the idea that as long as you keep the message the same, your methods are entirely up for grabs. Well, at best, that's only partly true. There can be a variety of gospel opportunities, and there are varieties of gospel tools, but there are, are definitive characteristics that mark authentic gospel ministry, wherever it happens, that mark it as a God thing rather than merely human cunning and charisma. And what Paul shares here will help us in our own times distinguish false teachers from true. And further, what he shares will help us evaluate our own gospel efforts, our own opportunities for ministry and how we carry those out to discern whether our efforts actually bear, carry with them the integrity of God-empowered ministry. Well, let's go back to our text. We've read verse 1. Let's go on to verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we are gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Three categories that describe authentic gospel ministry as carried out by these missionaries to those in Thessalonica. And the first, in verse 2, is characterized by courageous proclamation. Courageous proclamation. It wasn't a cakewalk. It wasn't an easy thing that they did to share the gospel. 
it was full of difficulty, so it required courage, courageous proclamation. And then in verses 3 through 6, God-centered motives as distinguished from self-centered motives. And then in verses 7 and 8, selfless care. There's a gentleness to their approach that often does not characterize those who say they are on the Lord's side and say they are trying to minister in His name. So, let's look first at this courageous proclamation in verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. But though we had already suffered and have been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There are three descriptions of the difficulties that presented themselves to the apostles. And the first is that they had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. They suffered, it refers to physical suffering. You may recall that they were beaten with rods in the public square. They were um, accused uh, they had delivered a slave girl from uh, demoniac, demon possession, and that removed her ability to tell the future. And so the owners of the slave brought these false charges against them, and they were publicly beaten in the town square, essentially for ruining this business that was taking advantage of the slave girl. But they suffered. They had marks in their body that showed the hatred of the devil and his own for the gospel and those that carry it. And then they were shamefully treated. The public beating wasn't, wasn't just the physical pain that was a problem. They in, endured the shame and disgrace of that public beating as criminals and, and subsequent jail time. They were treated like the bad guys. They were treating, treated like they were the scum of the earth. And the words that he uses here carry the idea of, of insulting behavior that's calculated to humiliate a person. And you see this commonly uh, turned against those that are seeking to be true to the gospel as you see efforts to, to minimize, to marginalize, to humiliate them as somehow evil people that deserve to be shamefully treated. It's not a small thing to be publicly vilified in shame, and, and it's, it's natural to shrink back from it. No human being likes to be uh, publicly stigmatized or, or shamed or made to look like an awful person. So they suffered, they were shamefully treated, and then when they presented the gospel, it was in the midst of much conflict. Their, their gospel witness in Thessalonica provoked jealousy and then mob violence and then even legal action that, that actually drove them out of town. This kind of conflict can, can wear you down, and the prospect of it can cause you to alter course and can silence you from whatever would cause such trouble. The word conflict um, is the idea of struggle. It's the word that we get agony from. And it's often used in context of hand-to-hand -hand combat or strenuous athletic contests. So when he talks about conflict, it's not like, oh, we've just had a misunderstanding. We're talking about an agonizing conflict with people, a struggle where you've got opposition that is making life very difficult. And yet none of these painful experiences stopped them from proclaiming the gospel. 
You say, well, you know, what do you expect? This is the Apostle Paul. He's like super saint. You know, he's got, he was handed, when he was given the apostleship, he was handed the Teflon shield. Um, I've heard people describe others that way, like, you must have, you know, you must be coated with Teflon. And I, my answer was, no, I'm bleeding too much to be coated with Teflon. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, and it's about a later experience, but he says that we were utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. And in fact, Jesus talks about his soul being shattered unto death as he enters into Gethsemane. In other words, you can be serving God doing so just as you ought to be doing, you know, not, not violating anything about his will, and, and still feel the pressure and the weight of the pushback you're getting to the level that you despair even of life, where you're just shattered, where you're beside yourself. And Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 1 that what God did was to use that, that despairing even of life, to teach them to rely on God who raises the dead. When you're so beat down that you despair of life itself, you need a God who can raise people from the dead. And it's often at those times of, of great pushback and great difficulty and great suffering where we are are brought to our knees or, or, or thrown on our backs that all we can do is look up to a God who rescues people even from the powers of death. This is part of what makes gospel ministry authentic. We had boldness in our God, Paul says, to declare to you the gospel of God. And the word he uses refers to freedom of speech. It's commonly used as one of the results of being filled by the Spirit. It's actually a fulfillment of what Christ promised His followers in Acts 1-8 when He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And He told them, until you receive that power, don't even try it. This courageous proclamation was rooted in the power of God Himself. So part of what marks gospel ministry is truly from God is this divinely empowered willingness to endure all the various forms of suffering and shame and conflict that gospel ministry may bring to us. Now, it only makes sense that a world that has rejected the authority and the goodness of God, that that world would push back against those who declare that God reigns. That that, that world would find it difficult to yield trust to God's grace and God's goodness, who's made a way through Jesus alone for sinners who repent and trust Him to be rescued from divine wrath, the wrath that we all deserve. It only makes sense in a world in rebellion against that, 
that, that they would push back when you say, this is the gospel message. Jesus alone can save you. You've got to bow the knee. On your own, you are doomed. Only if you turn back to God. And so, we declare God reigns and we rejoice in that. And yet, to the ear of a rebel sinner, that doesn't sound like good news. You see, Satan's deceived us into thinking that God isn't actually good, that God isn't actually for us, that He's just like the cosmic bully, and our human hearts want to escape that we might rule our own lives. So we expect this pushback. It, it makes sense that if we're being faithful to the gospel, we would have pushback. And it often looks like these things, physical suffering, being shamefully treated in conflict. But it also makes sense that anyone who genuinely holds the gospel to be true should not be deterred by opposition or silenced by personal suffering because the gospel is too important. People everywhere need to hear it. Its value is so high that no cost is too great. What is the symbol of this gospel witness? It's a cross. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your own cross. You're going to have to deny yourself and follow me. If the prospect of suffering or the actual experience of it causes us to abandon the effort, then people could rightly conclude that we don't really believe it or that it doesn't really work. So the question for us this morning is this, what tends to keep you from sharing the gospel the way you should. Physical suffering, humiliating insults, conflicts. And then on the flip side of that, what acts of courage is God calling you to exercise in order to further the gospel in the lives of those you could reach if you would only speak up? And as we track through the message this morning, let me give you fair warning. You're, we're going to find out that we have plenty of opportunity to do this right where we are. Gospel courage has a source for its strength. It's God himself. The gospel is God's. Our boldness comes from God. And that's why authentic gospel ministry not only is characterized by courageous proclamation, but is characterized by God-centered motives. And that's the second characteristic that we see in verses 3 through 6. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. There were religious hucksters all over the ancient world, just as there are today. It's no wonder that people get jaded and cynical about purveyors of religion. They are everywhere. Paul 
is evidently thinking of such pious frauds in the description that he gives here of what the missionaries were not. Look at the words that he uses to describe what they were not. He says, our appeal did not spring from error. We weren't trying to lead anyone astray. We weren't deceiving anyone. We're not doing any shell game here. We're not, we're not um, somehow modifying the message. It didn't spring from impurity, uncleanness. This word can refer to sexual impurity, but it also refers to mixed motives like greed or ambition or pride or popularity. They weren't in it for any other reason than for the gospel itself and for the glory of Christ. They were not in it to deceive, no attempt to deceive. This refers to the words used for bait or a trap, the idea of tricking somebody to their own harm. We didn't use words of flattery, the deceptive effort to win people over in order to exploit them. Our, our appeal was not a pretext for greed. It didn't cloak greed. It, we weren't just giving an outward show that would cover the fact that actually what we wanted was to, to fill our own pockets, to disregard the rights and well-being of others. This word greed is, is sometimes translated covetousness. And according to Ephesians 5, 5, it's idolatry. It's the opposite of authentic Christianity, where you see greed and covetousness and a materialistic approach to ministry, using people for this. What you're looking at is Christian fraud. Heard recently about a pastor who was berating their, his congregation for not getting him the right kind of watch for his birthday, or a robbery that occurred in the middle of a church service and the pastor's wife lost one million dollars worth of jewelry that she was wearing that way. That's not Christianity. Greed is not what we're about, nor are we seeking glory from people. They were apostles. They were sent ones, authorized and sent by the Messiah himself, but they did not use that privilege to make demands and pursue glory for themselves. They did not demand honor just because they carried authority as, as messengers from Christ. Instead, they were characterized by humility. It actually makes me a little bit nervous. I'll just, this is just personal. It makes me a little bit nervous when, when people address me as if my first name is pastor. I mean, I get it, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to correct, but... But my name is Drew, and it's actually my middle name. And, and I, I appreciate the kindness people show, but it makes me nervous because it's really easy. It's really easy for those in leadership, for the, the leadership role to go to their head and for them to forget that they're just regular people serving Jesus. All of this kind of self-seeking behavior that Paul describes here marks false 
prophets and fake apostles. It, it displays man-centered religion and self-indulgent motives. The world is full of people using religion to advance themselves. That is not authentic gospel ministry. It never has been, and it never will be. If we think that, that Christian service, whether it's done officially or whether it's done organically, if we think it's about somehow achieving respectability, we don't understand ministry. If we think it's about somehow advancing our career or gaining greater influence or, or even just salving my conscience to make up for all the bad things I did this week, that, that's, not, that's not authentic Christian living. That's not authentic ministry. Well, what does authentic ministry actually look like? Well, he contrasts it here. He says, our appeal, which is, he actually uses the word often translated exhort or, or comfort, our, our being called alongside you. It's a, it's a word that's used for the Holy Spirit. It's the paraclete, the comforter. And spirit-controlled believers care for others the way he does. It reflects the heart of God for people. When they came alongside the Thessalonians, it, it was to help them, not to use them, nor to harm them in any way. And why, why the difference? Why was their appeal not in any way to use them or abuse them? Well, verse 4 says, just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. God-centered motives. They were approved. They had been tested and proved, like we test metals to prove that their purity. They were entrusted with the gospel. The gospel is a priceless gift from God entrusted into our care. It's an amazing thing that God would even take the risk but it's not ours to twist or to hijack or to taint. We answer to God for how we pass it along, and it shouldn't be like that child's game, you know, where one person whispers something in the ear of the next person, and by the time it gets to the end of the classroom, it's something completely different. By the time it gets to the end of the line, it ought to be precisely the same thing. It's God's message, and we want to treat it as a holy thing and a valuable thing, a priceless thing. The ultimate accountability we have is to God. Whatever pressure might be on us to alter the message, we have to remember we will answer to God for how we minister to people. He's the one we want to please because the gospel belongs to him to trim it or distort it in order for human beings to be pleased with us is to forget whose gospel it is. In our own time, a major threat has emerged to the gospel in the form of a self-protective desire to be pleasing to those who do not receive the Word of God as it's been given. They demand that we trim and twist what God has entrusted to us so that our message affirms their own indulgent lifestyles and their own definitions of right and wrong and their own self-imagined identities versus what God has created us to be. And what's worse is that some professing believers claim that caving to this pressure 
is the Christian thing to do. They want us to pretend that God is okay with this rebellion and that Jesus would approve our going along with it. It's just a lie. Any version of a self-serving gospel ministry is not gospel and it is not ministry. God tests our hearts. He knows why we're in it. He knows what's moving what we say and what we do, and that's a sobering reality. We can pretend we minister for the glory of God and the good of others. How many people have said, well, I just want to serve God as long as it's in the limelight? God knows our motives. We may fool a lot of people, but we can never fool God. God is witness to our real desires. He knows full well whether we're in it for ourselves. He sees with absolute clarity whether our hearts are full of idolatry and self-centered desire. And he's certainly not going to rewrite the Scriptures or redesign how the universe works in order to conform to man's fraudulent redefinitions of reality. It's good to ask ourselves regularly why we do what we do especially the work we call ministry. And this is, this is a special danger for those of us who make our living in what we call ministry vocations. It becomes very difficult to separate what we're truly doing for God and His people versus what we're actually doing to advance our own career and happiness. I'm often reminded of the chilling prediction that Christ made in Matthew 7, that there will be those who preached in His name, did miracles in His name, and cast out demons in His name, to whom He will say, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, depart from me. A pulpit does not protect a man from hell. We do well to remember God's activity in genuine gospel ministry. God approves, God entrusts, God tests hearts. Are we living to please God or to please human beings? Are we in it for ourselves or are we in it for Him? Even if we don't make our living in what is generally thought of as a ministry vocation, every born-again believer is on mission for God, whether he or she, whoever he or she is, and, and whatever he or she does. Our vocation, our calling, according to the Scriptures, is to honor Jesus, to advance the gospel in the lives of those we encounter, to, to live out a life that's of equal weight with how God has treated us. Whatever work you do to pay your bills, your reason for living is still authentic gospel ministry. So, God-centered motives are critical to fulfilling your reason for existence as a believer in Jesus. It's your reasonable spiritual liturgy of worship to give yourself to lifelong service for God's pleasure, according to Romans 12. So, why do you do the ministry things you do? Whom are you trying to please? Is there anything you're using your life to accomplish that's actually driven by self-centered desires and ambition? 
You know, life goes by rapidly, and you can build a lot of things, and you can advance a lot of causes, but the, at the end, all that's going to matter is what was authentic gospel ministry. And how, and, and it's not, it's not that, that the, what we consider secular things don't matter, but they do matter in their connection to who we are in Jesus and in their connection to what we're on the planet to do. Authentic gospel ministry that is God-centered also has a heart for caring for others, because that's really the way God is. And so we see selfless care in verses 7 and 8. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Gentle, like a mother nursing her children, not rough or harsh in their care of the new believers at Thessalonica. Think of all the baggage these people had. Think of what they were coming out of. Think how easy it would be for, for the, the missionaries to kind of have their noses in the air with a kind of we're better, holier than you are attitude. That wasn't the attitude at all. This isn't gentleness toward those who have three decades of service to Jesus under their belt. This is gentleness to pagans who have just turned to Jesus. In fact, this is gentleness to them before they turn to Jesus. He says, we were affectionately desirous of you. We, we have this longing, this kind yearning with deep affection for you, the kind of thing you would expect in a, in a family or those who have been dear friends for years, kindred spirits. We, we were ready to share with you, that, and, the, and the word ready is actually more picturesque than that, is we were well pleased. We were gladly determined. It, it gave us joy and happiness to share with you. It was our delight to do it, to give you a part of ourselves along with the gospel of God. And when he refers to himself, he, he refers to, it's the word we get psychology from, our, our souls, our very lives, who, the, the real you. We gave you a part of the real us because you had become dear to us. You had become beloved to us, loved by us with self-sacrificing love. In fact, beloved is one of the apostles' favorite designation for other believers. You know, think about talking to other brothers and sisters in Christ as you are people that I love. You, you are a person I love. You are beloved, beloved by God, loved by God, loved by me. We love those God has loved. Like the choir song said, you are the love song. We'll sing forever. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Just as Christ sacrificed himself, demonstrating God's love for us, we are glad to sacrifice ourselves out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and out of love for people who may become our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the heart of genuine, authentic gospel ministry. 
And it's so easy to miss the opportunities we have to do this. So easy to misuse the opportunities we have. And, and I, want to just, I want to give you one example. In more than one occasion, I've talked with people who, who have been deeply harmed, sometimes changing the very trajectory of their lives by their experience, their experiences among their classmates in a Christian school. In high school. So here's the tendency. We think, oh, you know, I'm in school. I'm in school to learn how to serve Jesus. No, if you're a believer, you're serving Jesus right now, right here. You might be 10 years old, but you can serve Jesus. You might be seven. Samuel was like the only person that God was talking to, and he's probably kindergarten age. So I want you to think about your context. You may be in a, in a you know, marketplace, workplace. I think it's a little easier to think about, okay, I'm, I'm a missionary here. But look, if you're in Hampton Park Christian School, you are on mission for God. So the occasions that I heard about is where persons are going through deep trial and maybe even made some foolish decisions. And instead of classmates having a heart for them, they slandered them and belittled them and filled their text message thread ripping on them. That's ungodly. That's satanic. That is not authentic gospel. I guarantee you, seventh graders, eighth graders, below that, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, I guarantee you, your classroom is full of people who need you to care for them, who need you to figure out why they're so often late, why they're sleepy in class, what's going on in their family, what their heart struggles are. Their souls could be in the balance. And if all you're thinking about is the latest gossip or whether your popularity quotient is where you want it to be, you're going to miss the chance to engage in real ministry. I think back to my own high school years, and it was actually the contrast to that that made a huge difference in my life. I was 14, ninth grade, when I first started getting into the Scriptures every day. You know why I did it? I had, I had godly parents. I, I had been in Christian school for a few years. You know why I did it? I did it because the seniors in my school who had a relationship with me started talking regularly about how important it was to be in the Word and how there was no way for life to go well for a believer without that. And that's when I started getting in the Word every day. I needed that from them. 
you know, I look back and they were seniors and I was just a freshman. That's only three years difference. We were all young bucks. We were all green. But they impacted my life and the effect of it is still today. Don't miss the opportunities you have to engage in ministry. The needs are all around you. You can't read how Christ responded to human brokenness and need without being moved by His compassion for people. And those who minister the gospel in His name with authenticity carry in their hearts and display in their ways that same gentle compassion toward those that they serve, a humility a care, a love for people. And Paul shares all this, not because the believers in Thessalonica didn't know that the missionaries felt this way about them. He writes it down because they did know. They had been eyewitness of authentic gospel ministry empowered by God, and it changed their lives forever. And you, you notice how he writes, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, you yourselves know Verse 5, as you know. In other words, he's not, he's not saying, oh, by the way, you probably wouldn't have known this, just looking on the outside, but, but this is the way we felt about you. He says, look, you knew this is the way we felt about you. You remember how we treated you. So do those to whom you minister, those to whom you have opportunity to minister, do, do, do they know that you deeply care for them? You know, the psalmist in one place says, you know, no one cared for my soul. And there are times of, of brutal loneliness that each of us face. And to know that somebody actually cares, I mean, actually cares, they don't just say that they do, is priceless. Would they describe your treatment of them as gentle as a mother nursing a child? Would they say that you show them kind affection and yearning? Like you, actually, you like being with them. Would they affirm that you have given them a piece of your own self, your own soul, along with the gospel truth that you share and live? And if you think about it, I, I really don't think that when all is said and done and you're standing before Jesus... He's really going to care how many Bible doctrines you can spout or how many verses you've memorized. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't learn doctrine or that you shouldn't learn verses. What he will care about is what you did with it. What you did with it. How you used it. He gave you a great gift. He gave me a great gift that calls for courageous proclamation God-centered motives, and selfless care. These are the hallmarks of authentic gospel ministry. And I pray that they will be what others witness about our lives. Let's pray. God, we read a text like this, and it's just inherently convicting. When we do what comes naturally, we just drift into self-centered thinking and living. 
we just fall right in line with the current of the world. God, do such a work in our hearts that up comes courage, the courage to say what needs to be said, but with motives that have nothing to do with promoting ourselves, but with recognizing our accountability to you and and your glory and your desire that others might be rescued. God, grow our selfless care for one another. God, we have enough problems of our own, and sometimes that just blinds us to the needs around us. God, take off the blinders for us. And Lord, wean our hearts off ourselves so that we can serve the needs of others the way we should. Show us how to do it well. Help us follow Jesus in this. Lord, may we fulfill the gospel ministry you've given to us with integrity. And God, forgive us. Forgive us for the times we have failed you and failed others in that task. We pray all these things for your glory, that your name might be lifted high, that your gospel might be spread abroad, that it might be credible and authentic and demonstration of the word and of power. We pray that, dear God, because we can't do it for ourselves. Only by your spirit, Lord. For the glory of your Son, we pray.